right, well, it's been a quick, it's been a quick six or seven months and uh, very grateful for the folks you saw in the video as well as, uh, as you right there. So thank you for joining us with, uh, for Biltmore Church Online. Hope you are doing very, very well. Go ahead and take your Bibles wherever you are. Uh, turn to Mark chapter 14. Uh, that's where we're going to be. And so again, whether you are a first time uh, watch or viewer or uh, you are watching all the time, whether you uh, live out of state or in state, thank you for joining us. want to give a special shout out to a few people uh, watching online. Bob and Sharon from Merle's Inlet, South Carolina. Thank you for for uh, joining us. Elaine from Salisbury, North Carolina. Thank you for joining us. Kevin and Ashley from Hendersonville, North Carolina, and also Liz from Dallas, Texas. All right, Liz, sorry about the Longhorns yesterday, but glad you are here joining us uh, for worship today. Hey, again, we're going to be as Mark chapter 14. We've been in a series called This Must Be Greater Than That. Uh, if you don't know what that's about, you can go to some previous messages and see uh, where that whole title comes from. But let me start off on a fairly light note. And me, for me, one of the top five animated movies of all time is got to, number one is Lion King without a doubt, but number somewhere in the top five would be a movie called Madagascar. All right, actually got to go there one time with a basketball team, a beautiful, beautiful place. But Madagascar, if you haven't watched it, watch it this afternoon. But uh, in the movie Madagascar, it's about a bunch of quote unquote wild animals who are uh, captive in a zoo. And uh, the people ooh and awe over these awesome wild animals, especially the lion, they'll watch the lion, make the lion roar, all that stuff. And for the most part, the animals like it as well because every need they have is taken care of. Uh, people really serve them hand and foot. They don't have to go hunt for their food. All this stuff is right there at their beck and call. But there's a zebra in the movie whose name is Marty. And somewhere toward the start of the movie, what Marty begins to think of is like, man, I've got to be made for something more than just parading in front of these people behind these bars. I've got to be made for something more. His instincts were kicking in. And so uh, as the movie progresses, basically he talks the other wild animals or some of the other wild animals to go and busting out of the zoo and they end up finding themselves at the island, which is like in the southern tip of Africa. They find themselves in Madagascar and the humor in the movie, much of it is surrounded by the whole idea of these domesticated animals that were now trying to kind of regain what had been put inside them, their instincts to then go out and live like the wild animals they were created to be. And uh, I guess when I read that or when I think about that, I think, man, I, uh, how many of us have ever kind of had the same feeling that Marty had as well? It's like, man, there's got to be, there's something inside me that says there's got to be more than this. I mean, underneath the bills and the social media, uh, the workplace drama, the hobbies, the church events, man, there's this gnawing need that we all have for a cause that is worthy enough for us to give our whole lives to. And sometimes we sense it maybe in brief moments, maybe you're on a mission trip and just for that brief moment, it's like, man, this is, this is what life is about. Maybe you've even sensed that during the pandemic when you've ministered to your neighbors or been able to reach out and kind of love on them, love on your neighbors. But to be honest, most Christians feel like we're stuck in a zoo. It's like, man, I know there's something more. There's something that wants to get out. Everything is comfortable, but I'm kind of gone around the cul-de-sac of normality so many times. There's got to be something more. Well, that's what we're looking at today. In this series, we've looked and contrasted. You know what? This is kind of the way the church has been, but this is what the church could be. And today we're going to actually look at the fact that, you know what? Passion, passion is greater 
must be greater than complacency. Passion for the Christ follower and for the church must be greater than complacency. Passion is just an almost uncontrollable emotion that is wanting to burst out. That's what passion is. And so this must be greater than that. Again, the whole idea is as Christ followers, we're in this cultural moment where the church, especially in the West, has not been at its finest. All the statistics sort of just are fruit to the fact that, you know what, 7,000 churches a year close their doors. There's like somewhere around 55,000 that are supposed to close their doors in the next six or seven years, and that's actually pre-COVID. Jesus says this, it says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. And that's kind of where the church is right now. The church, for the most part, in every measurable category, is kind of being trampled under the culture's feet. But what's awesome is God's commitment to his church means that every generation of believers gets the opportunity to shine on the beauty of Christ to the generation God has given them. And so for the past few weeks, we've looked at love must be greater than hate. Conviction must be greater than conformity. Authenticity must be greater than hypocrisy. And then our good friend Joby Martin last week just did an awesome job on repentance must be greater than rebellion. So again, let me tell you a little bit of context. We're going to jump into Mark 14. Uh, this passage is actually also in Matthew 26 and in John chapter 12. But Mark 14 is the one we're going to take it from. And here's, here's, the, here's what's going on. This is in the last stages of Jesus's ministry. He is uh, heading on his way to Jerusalem where he knows he's going to be uh, betrayed, accused, and then eventually crucified for the sins of the world. And he's on his way there, and there's a little town called Bethany right outside of Jerusalem that he used to go during his ministry when he wanted to get away and just have some rest and, and restoration. And he stops there now. And he stops there and he has some good friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. When you do the cross-referencing, they're there. The disciples are there. There's a guy named Simon who apparently was a leper who was cleansed by Jesus. And they're having this party more than likely as a thank you party to Jesus for raising Lazarus from the dead. So here's where the story starts. Let me walk through this. A lot of times in a narrative, which is this is, we kind of work through the passage and then go to the application. So let's read these nine verses. And here's where it starts in Mark 14, verse 1. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. Jerusalem swelled in its population uh, when Passover was done. People came from all these towns. Jesus was extremely popular, particularly out in the rural areas. And like, hey, we got to wait a little bit because if we do this, stuff will happen. We don't want to have happen. And here's where, the, here's where the party starts. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, that's how they would eat. They would recline. There weren't these big chairs. A woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted? That's a key phrase. Why was the ointment wasted like this? Now, we know from the other places that Judas is the one that voiced it. Judas is the ringleader. He was the one that was the treasure. He was the one that was really struggling with this whole idea. But the other disciples jumped right in. 
Why? You know why? Because by the way, complacency always criticizes passion. Complacency always criticizes passion. It's like, man, just settle down. God gave you a brain. Why don't you use that? That's too much. That's too far. That's too expensive. That's whatever. Complacency is always criticizing passion. For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii. That's somewhere we don't really know. That's a denarii was basically an average worker's salary, one denarii for a day. So this is like a year's salary. So whatever that is, let's say it's like $20,000 bottle of perfume and given to the poor. And they scolded her. The word scolded there is like horses snorting at somebody else. They're pretty ticked off. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? And here's the key. She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. She's got some insight they don't have. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her, and we are doing that right as we speak. So let me give you a couple of thoughts. The woman in the story we know from John's gospel is Mary. You got Mary, Martha, and Lazarus who are there. They're in in Luke's gospel and that whole deal where Martha's in the kitchen and Mary's the one worshiping at Jesus' feet and Jesus commends her for doing that and kind of says, Martha, you're choosing the wrong thing right there. And uh, by the way, a lot of times people will look at one of those verses and says, you know what, man, that's What's he talking about the poor? Please understand, Jesus is not saying we neglect the poor, all right? Much of his ministry was spent caring about the poor. What he's saying is this is a unique moment and they should take advantage of it. But as we kind of jump in here, let me just do true confessions of a pastor for a second. When I read this passage, when I studied the passage this week, anytime I've read this, I typically read myself as Mary. That's who I want to be. I read Mary and I want to be, I want to be that person, full of passion, no fear. I don't care what other people think. I'll preach whatever God tells me to preach. A lot of courage, devotion. That's what I want to be. Sometimes that's who I am. But if I get deeply honest, way too often I act, uh, I act like the disciples. I get caught up in the details. I sometimes frown on this kind of passion as naive and not efficient, and I can be like Martha. You know what? When I'm like Martha, I know I should be sitting at the feet of Jesus, but I'm consumed with getting the practical stuff done. Let me kind of dive in there further. I, I know what it's like to read the Bible simply to get a sermon together. I know what that's like. I know, what it's, uh, I know what it's like to not really want to hear about the problems of people. I know what it's like to be in that state of mind where I'm like, you know what, I'm going to pray for you, I'm going to pray for you, and then I forget to actually pray for you. One pastor friend said, the way I was doing the work of God destroyed the work of God in me. Or another way to put it, the way I've always thought about it, is I thought there have been times in my ministry when the work God was doing through me was destroying the work of God he wanted to do in me. And that's not a good place. So like, how do you come up with application? A lot of times it's either talking to you or looking in the mirror. And so we could just go on and on and on about about complacency. And when I think about complacency, it shows up in real tangible things. Complacency is when we crave the acceptance of people more than we crave the acceptance of God. 
when we're so tired, I know what it's like to think, man, how many likes did I get on a post and let that either make my day go awesome or make my day go poorly. I know what it's like to sit on an airplane. I know the, I know the pleasure of sharing my faith in a bold way. I also know the pain of sitting on an airplane next to a person when we used to fly. I know the pain of sitting there next to a person praying they would not open their mouth and converse so I could get a sermon done. I know what it's like to uh, crave experiences and YOLO, you know, you only live once, you only live once. And yet I read in my Bible, it's like, you know what, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And I'm challenged that it's not YOLO, that it's actually only live forever if you're a Christ follower. You know what? That everything we try to get in a bucket list, you know what? I'm going to get like tons better actually in heaven. I know what it's like to to cringe at being sacrificially generous. And it's like, man, I I might do it because I'm supposed to, but I know what it's like. I also know the joy of abandoning stuff and saying, you know what? God's going to do that. So uh, here's what it is. It's not a counseling session for you and me today. Um... It is trying to ask some questions. How come complacency is somehow so prevalent with us? And then how do we maneuver that to be passionate about God more than we actually are? Because the world needs a passionate church. And so how do we do that? Why do we struggle with that? Let me give you a couple of things here from the story that God showed me. The first one is this, an inaccurate view of who Jesus is. Just in an accurate view, a minimized view of who Jesus is. In the story, Mary is the only one that really recognizes, I mean, who Jesus is. Now think about this. This is the same room where you got a bunch of disciples, man, and they got raised in the Old Testament faith that every single book was pointing toward the person who is now sitting at their table. They've been discipled, they have been taught, they have been ministered to for three years The word Christ actually means anointed one, and yet in this story, only Mary understood what that meant. Only Mary understood the sacrifice that was about to take place. Only Mary was starting to get the understanding that the Jesus that's introduced in John 1 is the same God of Genesis 1 that steps out on the front porch of heaven and speaks 350 billion galaxies into being, that he's that big. But he's so detailed, he can put 287 distinct muscles into the head of a caterpillar is now sitting at her table. And so it's an inaccurate view, a minimized view of who Jesus is. And uh, Judas, Judas wanted, this, Judas has already set up the betrayal. And see, Judas wanted a Messiah that gave him the good life, that made him money, that put him in a prominent position He thought Messiah meant good life, and Mary understood Jesus himself was the good life. Judas thought, you know what, that's a waste to be that extravagant. It's a waste. And and actually, in some ways, he's right. One Puritan theologian, Jonathan Edwards, said the thing that is so shocking about Mary's act was its total uselessness. And think about it. It was useless It was useless to Jesus. He didn't need that expensive and an anointing. I mean, a few hours and that would have been gone. It was useless to Mary, all right? Doing that, if you go back to John chapter 11, it was not something that so Jesus would accept them. He already told Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, you know what? You're gonna be in heaven with me and I accept you. 
It only served one purpose. The only purpose it served was, I want to declare my love for Jesus and put his worth on display to say, you know what? You are worthy. You are worth 10 billion bottles of this perfume. And she just, and she just breaks it. R.C. Sproul says this, men are never duly touched and impressed with a conviction of their insignificance until they have contrasted themselves with the majesty of God. And loved ones, I just got to tell you, uh, when you look in the Bible, what is, strikes you so immediately when you read the Gospels is that nobody really just kind of liked Jesus. They either loved Jesus or hated Jesus. They either said, let's crucify him or they'll bow down and worship him. And that same Jesus says this about our response back to him. Revelation 3 says, I know your works and you are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you were lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. That is shocking. Lukewarmness is a synonym of complacency. I'm, I mean, hot coffee is awesome. I get a hot coffee or maybe three cups every single morning. Hot coffee is, is awesome, all right? My millennial staff and sons have taught me that, you know what? A cold coffee can be pretty good as well. Took some convincing, but cold coffee can be pretty good as well, especially on a hot day. But you know what is nasty every time, 100% of the time, is room temperature coffee. It's just nasty. It tastes bad. And here's the challenge. The single biggest cause of atheism are people who claim to know God, but are the same room temperature of everybody else around them. And usually what happens is they grow up in a church and they grow up in a home with other people who claim to be Christ followers and their passion is not either hot nor cold. And when people know that you are a Christian and you're not passionate about him, that tells people, the message is, it tells people that, you know what, there's not that much to excite you about Jesus. And so one of the reasons we have uh, complacency is an inaccurate view of Jesus because our lives, our morals, our marriages, our generosity should scream, you know what? He is, he is worth this kind of passion. Let me give you a second one real quick. It's a surface appreciation of the gospel. A surface appreciation of the gospel. Now here in this story, did you notice in those first couple of verses, this time frame? The time frame revolves around what is called Passover. Passover, again, we don't have time to go through all of that, but Passover and the gospel are intimately connected. The Passover goes way back to Exodus when God rescued his people. Remember, and he sent all those plagues, let my people go, let my people go, he spoke through Moses. He wouldn't, but finally he sent the final plague. And here's what it was. Whether you are a Jew or an Egyptian, the death angel is going to go over your house. And if you have not expressed faith by taking a lamb, killing the lamb, putting it over your doorpost, your firstborn will die. So the bottom line was the justice of God demanded payment for the sin. And what he was introducing to his people right there was the whole concept of substitution. Either the child dies or the lamb dies, but somebody because of the justice of God has got to pay for that. And so what the people did is they expressed their faith through slaying a lamb, putting it, the blood on the doorpost. And then later on in the introduction of John's gospel, he looks at Jesus and says, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
And when you look at this in a few more verses, he's going to introduce the Lord's Supper, the blood of the new covenant, and the whole response to that, he says, you know what, should be passionate. He says the way she responds is beautiful. It's going to be connected for eternity. The way she responded to the gospel, it's a beautiful thing. One of the verses that is very convicting that Peter writes in one of his epistles is this. He said that the angels are Depending on your translation, they're baffled, they're stunned when they look on the gospel. I mean, that's kind of a cool thing to think about. But think about what the angels have actually seen. I mean, the angels saw all those stories. He, they got to see the Red Sea split. Okay. They got to see the Ten Commandments given. But what they are amazed at is the fact that God would become a man, live the life we were supposed to live, die the death in our place. That's what stuns them. Like, how could you do that? And that's what Mary understands to some degree. Mary's like, I deserve nothing, but God has given me everything in Christ. And that is a treasure worth throwing my whole life toward. And the whole picture is, I'll give you a quick example. The way you and I respond does show how we value something. So for example, I got a gift card this week from a church member that I'd done a favor for a while back. And he basically gave me a, gave me a gift card, all right? Gave me a $100 gift card. I was like, yeah, I, I, I wrote him a note. I texted him and said, hey, thanks so, much for that. thanks so much for that gift card. Cannot wait to spend it. He wrote me a quick text back, said, no problem. Thanks, that was it. I responded in kind to a nice gift. Would my response be different if I was, let's say, like a million dollars in debt and somebody came up and said, hey, just want you to know you're completely out of debt. Not only are you completely out of debt, I have paid off your million dollar debt, but I've also put a million dollars in your bank account. That's what the gospel is. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. That's the debt is paid so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's the million dollars to your asset side. And so what's our response? Is your response passion or is it a yawn? You're like, I, I don't want it to be like that. It, I used to have it and I don't have it anymore. I used to be fired up for worship, but man, this pandemic has just seemingly quenched all the fire I had for God. I mean, I've got these questions and I'm not getting my answers. And since I didn't get my answers, I'm like, whatever. So how do I fire this thing back up again? If it's not where it should be, Maybe I had it and lost it. Maybe you never had it to begin with, but how do I fire this thing up? How do I turn it around? All right, let me give you a couple of things you see as well from the text. This would be kind of a old, uh, old little term, the DTR, define the relationship. My wife was at her exercise class this week and she overheard a couple of young ladies talking and they were talking about, and I hope, hope you're not watching whoever she overheard, but it makes a great illustration because here's, here's what they're talking about. They were talking about a relationship and the DTR talk because that's what, a, you know, define the relationship is that talk you have with your other to kind of ask where in the world is this relationship. And sometimes it happens very planned and a long conversation and sometime you just know that you know and as soon as it happens, you know it's there. And what she was overhearing was this uh, particular young lady telling another young lady about the dating relationship and basically what had happened a couple days earlier was the guy, they were sitting there watching some show on Netflix, I think, and the guy said out of the blue, just said, I just love you. I just love you. 
<laughs> I don't know if they've been dating that long or anything. And I just love you. I just love you. That's what he said. And she didn't know what to say. So when she didn't know what to say, he said, I just love you. She said, thank you. <laughs> that's all she said. By the way, if you say I love you and she says thank you, that's not a good sign. That's not going well for you. Define the relationship. So here's a, here's a scene I kind of want you to put in your mind. Let's say you go to your favorite coffee shop, favorite breakfast place, whatever, and you get a table way back in the back so you can have some privacy. Just you, you got to think about some things. And then uh, you're sitting back there and then Jesus comes up and sits at your table. And you, you're kind of surprised because he doesn't have blonde hair and blue eyes, but you know it's Jesus. And he cuts right to the chase. He goes right to the heart of what he wants to talk about. And he basically says, it's time for you and I to define this relationship. And he wants to know basically this, is, is our relationship exclusive? Is our relationship you two or you and him or you with him or you with him and then a bunch of other competitors? And uh, somebody put it this way, there is no forgiveness Without repentance, there is no salvation without surrender. There is no life without, without death. So here's what I would, here's what I would uh, challenge you to define a relationship is you can go right to the heart of what your relationship with Jesus is, is what do you do when you and Jesus disagree? When you and Jesus disagree, uh, who wins? Now, if you're a Christ follower, when you and Jesus disagree, then you say, you know what, you're right, I'm wrong, and by God's grace, I will change. And the reason this is so important is if you follow Jesus long enough, at some point, he's gonna disrupt it. He's gonna disrupt it. You know, I, I, my, my undergrad's in finance. I was supposed to be, I was supposed to be a banker, and yet, and yet here we are. Sometimes he'll, uh, he'll, he'll get up in your business with your money. You thought, you thought it was yours and uh, he gets up in your bank account and uh, you start to struggle and he's like, you know, I thought I, was, I thought I was Lord. I thought I was Lord and you're balking a little bit. Sometime I'll get up in your relationships and he'll sit there and go, you know what? Uh, I need you to forgive her. I need you to forgive him. It's like, no, I'm not ready for that. I, th I thought I was Lord. I thought I was the Lord. Here's the way to think about it. Surrender, which is what you see in Mary's life. Surrender is not a reality until you don't like what he says. Surrender's not a reality until you don't like what Jesus tells you to do. Up until that point, it's just convenient because you've agreed with everything he said. But listen to me, at some point, if you walk with Jesus for more than a month, he will say, I want you to do this and you don't necessarily wanna do that. And you're like, well, I just wanna, I just wanna, I just wanna be happy. I just wanna be happy. And uh, let me try to segue to that. God is not upset at you if you're a Christ follower. He's not upset at you because you want to be happy. You're like, well, yeah, I read, but he's a jealous God. Listen, he's not jealous like some high school boyfriend that is super controlling. He is a jealous God, but he's not upset because you want to be happy. He's upset because you try to be happy and leave him out. And he knows that he is the source of all happiness. And so when you look at, at, at all this, uh, think of it like this. Let's just say, uh, let's say you're on your wedding day. Because you know, it, it does not glorify God at all if you and I obey him with drudgery. 
If you are like, you know what, man, I got to do this just because God told me to, all right? I got to forgive even though I don't want to. I got to be generous because God wants me to. I got to love my spouse. I got to maintain. That does not glorify God at all. God is not looking for begrudging submission. He's not. Do you think Mary's like that? And Mary's not like that. Mary's like, give me that bottle. Boom, I'm busting the whole thing. That's how much I love Jesus. I want to do that. Who do you think in this story was happier? Mary was happier. Mary's like, I'm putting it out there, and it's the most exhilarating, not safest, the most exhilarating thing in the whole room. The rest of them are just murmuring and complaining and critiquing. But Mary's just putting it out there. Just like, it'd be like this in the wedding. Suppose you go up and if, you're, if you got the privilege of being married, can you imagine if the minister comes up to you and is like, because uh, um, I've done a bunch of weddings and you know what I've never heard in the vows? I've never heard some vows. Sometimes people write them and if you write them, I'm like, I got to see them first because sometimes they get a little crazy. But you know what I've, what I've never heard, what I've never heard somebody saying up there is like, you know what? I hereby renounce all my desires for romance, physical intimacy, and happiness to become the wife of this fill in the blank. Never heard that at all. You know why? Because the spouse-to-be would like, man, I don't, I don't want to be something you begrudgingly do. I want to be part of how I fulfill that in your life. In the same way, that's what we're talking about here. Now, repentance and faith, this might be the first, you're like, I don't, I don't think I've ever even had that whole idea. If you never repented and put your trust in Jesus, that's the start. You're like, I'm trying to be happy and I'm just going around and around. The man, just come to Jesus. That's the first step, all right? You're going to have a choice. You can either critique the Christians or you know what? I can be a Christ follower. Repentance and faith. You know what? What you did on the cross somehow counted for me. And so right now I'm going from this direction and I'm going this direction. That's repentance and faith. But a lot of us were Christ followers already. And yet the way that we continually fire these things up is by repentance as well. Not repentance to be saved, but the idea of, you know what? I've chased after other loves. One of the most convicting things that this Bible says when it comes to us chasing after, after these other things Chasing after other loves, chasing after other things. Those things aren't bad unless they become the source that we're trying to go for for happiness. But the Bible repeatedly, Old Testament and New Testament, says, you know what? That's spiritual adultery. That's you cheating on God, thinking those other things will satisfy you. And so what we do, we repent of those things as well to say, you know what? That's not what it is. I've got to define the relationship. You're Lord and I'm not. And so let's get down to real specifics before we close up. And here's the, here's the second thing is you got to determine what's going to change. God's a doing God. It's not, that's not a, when it comes to Jesus on the cross, it wasn't that he had the intention of going to the cross. No, he went to the cross. He did something. Mary went in the back room going, you know what? One of these days I'm going to get around to, you know, dabbing a little bit of ointment on Jesus. That's not what she did. She said, now is the time, this is the place, and this is the action that I need to do this. And she took it out and she, it wasn't necessarily that super secure. Some, some scholars said that they would put this in this flask, they would put this perfume in the flask, and it could only be broken one time. You could only break it, because once you broke the flask, I mean, you couldn't put it back on. She broke the top of it. Another commentator actually said, you know what, that would have been all of her financial security so that if a famine hit the land, they knew that they had that as like, that's my, that's my safety net, that's my security, that's my nest egg back there. And she just says, you know what, I'm going all in, I'm pushing all the chips to the center of the table and said, this is what God wants me to do. Now again, 
People criticize you when you get real passionate because the normal thing you see in the New Testament has become abnormal now, so people don't recognize it and go, man, settle down. It's kind of funny, though, when you look around. I mean, passion, again, always critiques complacency. Binge-watching an entire season of TV shows on Netflix, now that's, that's normal. Spending $10,000 to go to Europe, normal. Training hours and hours a week to try to push back father time, normal. Playing fantasy football and tracking it like a Wall Street trader, normal. Devoting your life to Jesus and building the kingdom of God, man, that's kind of extreme. That probably actually is a little bit unhealthy. No, it's normal. It's normal for you to be passionate about the gospel. It's normal for us to be passionate about our neighbors and what God wants to do in our cities. And so what is God calling you to abandon? What bottle is he calling you to break? That you're like, man, I've been hiding this. I don't want to give it up. And he's like, today's the day. This is what we've come here for. For some of you, it is that first time repentance and faith and embracing Jesus by faith. It's by saying somehow when he said it is finished, that counted for me. And so where you're watching right now in your living room, your bedroom or coffee shop or wherever you are, just bow your head and just say, Jesus, I want to become a Jesus follower. What you did for me on that cross 2,000 years ago, right now I'm embracing by faith. Let us know. You just, that's why we actually say, hey, just text follow. Just text follow. That means, you know, hey, let's get this thing started. For others of you, it's like relational stuff. Let's just get in your business a little bit. For some of you, you know what? You're living with somebody and you're like, you know what? I kind of got to do this. I got to do this. It's supposed to make me happy. And Jesus is like, you know what? I'm asking you to move out if you're not married. I'm asking you to move out and trust me that I will provide the male or the female, the man or the woman, the husband or the wife for you. For some of you, it is just your resources. Just your resources. You trust God. You know you're a Christian. You trust God for your salvation. But absolutely, the last time you made something generous to somebody else, supported a compassion kid, built a child development center, tithed anything, it has been a long time. He's like, let go of that. Let go of that. For some of you, again, it is uh, relationships like I got to forgive this person. I got to get plugged into a church. Some of you, it's simple as uh, watching people baptized. You see it here. If you tune in very much, you see people baptized all the time. You're like, what's the big deal with that? It's just the first step of obedience. Just the first step. If you're a Christ follower, your first step of obedience is to go public, which means, you know what? I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed of who Jesus is. I'm not ashamed of what he's done in my life. And you get a church, you get a church, and then you get churches. You know, and what happens is God changes us, and then God changes our small group, and then our small group changes the church, and then the church changes other churches, and the churches change a region, and then the region changes a state, and the state changes a country, and then the country changes the world. But it starts right here with you and I in a church. And so I'm going to give you this one picture real quick because it's kind of cool when you think about all the animal kingdom stuff. When I was looking at the Madagascar stuff, it brought to mind what you call animal groups. And uh, bees, as you know, are called swarms. Fish, you're called schools. Cattle, all right? Herds, lions, technically not a cat, at least the book I read. Lions are a pride. Right, buzzards, I found, found buzzards that are sitting there looking to eat the flesh off of a dead animal. You know what they're called? A committee. That's actually what they're called. The one that is, uh, the one to me though, that is the way the church is supposed to look is, believe it or not, I like a rhino. I mean, a rhino, I didn't know, a rhino can run 30 miles an hour. 30 miles an hour. That's like, that's way faster than like a squirrel, but nobody's afraid of a squirrel running that fast, but 30 miles an hour. 
The problem is they can only see 30 feet in front of them. So you got 5,000 pounds of one rhino, and then you got a bunch of rhinos of 5,000 pounds, and they run 30 miles an hour, but they can't see 30 feet in front of them. You'd think, man, they're going to be timid. They can't see that far in front of them. They're not at all. They're not timid at all. They just run. They just run. And you know what they're called? Bunch of rhinos, 5,000 pounds, can't see 30 feet in front of them. They're running 30 miles an hour. <laughs> they're called a crash. That's what they're called, a crash, crash of rhinos. And you know, they're even called a crash of rhinos if they're staying still just because of the mere potential of what they could be if they all started running together. And that's the point is when a church is filled with passionate Christians, they are an unstoppable force. Even if we can't see 30 feet in front of us, it's not, it's not that we have to be afraid. Even though the fact we can't see 30 feet in front of us, whatever is 30 feet in front of us, they need to be afraid. They got to watch out because the rhinos are coming. That's the way a church should be. And that's what a church is filled with passionate, on fire followers of Jesus. And that's what we pray we will be.